And as I was in chiropractic school, I decided that I was going to take my health in my own hands. And I actually figured out, I diagnosed myself based off the labs that I had. I just started plugging things into the internet and was able to put together, you know, I think I have Lyme disease. And then I got tested um, for Lyme, which isn't always that accurate, but I found the most accurate test I could. And sure enough, it came back with Lyme disease. When it came to eating and dieting, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I interviewed over a thousand women and I said, what did you do? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what did you eat? How'd you do it? If you want to learn how to lose weight for life through intermittent fasting, burn fat, and break the bondage of food, then this podcast is for you. I'm Chantal Ray, author of Waste Away, The Chantal Ray Way, and each week I have different guests answering your questions. Remember, the thoughts and opinions in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode, and I'm so excited about my guest today. It's Dr. Tori Thompson. I met Tori at the Mindshare Summit I attended this summer in San Diego, and she became my BFF while we were there. We had such a great time. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was so awesome to meet you, and we had so much fun in San Diego, so I'm so excited to be here today. So if you don't know Dr. Tori, she earned her doctorate uh, doctorate of chiropractic from Southern California and is also a health coach at Modern Holistic Health in Austin, Texas. So how's everything going so far since the last time we've seen each other? It's been good. It's been busy. We've been, we came back and kind of hit the ground running after Mindshare. We were inspired to take some of the stuff we learned and implement it in the practice. And we filmed for some documentaries while we were there. So we kind of been back to seeing all the, all the clients that we see. And it's been really exciting and really fun since we've been back. So I'm, I'm, you know, very excited. So I know that you personally have struggled with Lyme disease for a while, and you didn't even really know in the beginning all your signs and symptoms could be related to that. Tell us a little bit about your own personal health journey. Yeah, so I was sick for long time. Starting when I was early high school, kind of late middle school, I started with weird symptoms. I was really tired all the time. I would have my arms would get weak and I would um, not be able to really lift them up. And I was an athlete. So that was something that was kind of an odd symptom, but doctors just told me I'm overworked and, you know, just rest. I started gaining weight and got really puffy, but I was, you know, not eating anything different. I was getting headaches. I was getting ringing in my ears and dizziness. And I went to doctors for about 10 years looking for answers. And they diagnosed me with everything from type one diabetes to you're crazy to probably a brain tumor and kind of everything in between. But they really could never prove that I had any of that, but they were always very happy to give me medications. They, they couldn't tell me what was wrong, but they were happy to give me medications, which I never took. So I um, just kept searching and searching. And as I was in chiropractic school, I decided that I was going to take my health in my own hands. And I actually figured out, I diagnosed myself based off the labs that I had. I just started plugging things into the internet and was able to put together, you know, I think I have Lyme disease. And then I got tested um, for Lyme, which isn't always that accurate, but I found the most accurate test I could. And sure enough, it came back with Lyme disease with multiple co-infections. And so I had, um, finally figured out after 10 years that that was what was wrong. And then I started the slow journey to healing and it took me about a year and a half to get myself back 
healthy and under control, but um, worth every second of it. So this is a question I like to ask all my guests that come on my show to walk us through a day in the life of Tori. Like, what did you eat yesterday? When did you eat? Are there any foods that are off limits or that you try to avoid? And any supplements that you take or any cool routines that you've implemented that kind of take your health to the next level? Yeah, I I am a stickler to my health. Because I was sick for so long, I do not... I haven't let up really on my health routine since then. So I eat 100% organic. I don't eat anything genetically modified. I stay away from gluten, dairy, soy, alcohol, sugar, corn, pretty much all the big offenders I stay away from. And I eat a pretty much plant-based diet. I don't eat a lot of meat. I eat a lot of vegetables, um, kind of 50-50 raw and cooked, a lot of healthy fats, avocados, oils, nuts, and little bits of meat you know, one, no more than once a day. So I, yesterday for breakfast, the first thing I do when I wake up is I have my celery juice. I drink celery juice. It helps me go to the bathroom, helps me detox. And I'm always looking for ways to detox. And then I will work out and then I'll come home and I'll have a smoothie for breakfast. I'll do a a plant-based protein powder. And then I don't use any fruit. It's just greens, avocado oil, fats, you know, and then your superfoods, your mushrooms. And um, I'm all about medicinal mushrooms. And then I'll put in maca and spirulina and chlorella. So it's kind of a black concoction, but I love it. It's a great, great morning routine. And, you know, it helps me feel energized and full for a really long time. So when I'm working with clients all day, I don't really have time to snack. So I will, it'll hold me over till one or two when I eat lunch which is usually vegetables and meat, nothing too exciting, but it's, it's veggies and meat. And then is always pretty much plant-based. So it's going to be heavy on vegetables and fats and I don't do meat at dinner. And so it's kind of a, um, a pretty vegetable based plan for me. Okay. So, um, Explain that when you said you don't eat, so you'd like to eat meat once a day um, in the lunchtime. How come you don't eat the meat at the at night? I just noticed with myself that I get um, my bloating. I'll feel a little bloated and heavy if I eat meat at night. I'm one of those people. I just, when I was sick, I would play with food. I would figure out what made me feel better and what made me feel worse. And that's what I always encourage people to do. No one diet is perfect for everyone. So what I do and what you do might be completely different, but they work for both of us. And so for me, I played with protein and animal protein just didn't really work for me, especially late at night. So I just cut it to lunch and that's how I feel the best. I wake up, my stomach doesn't feel bloated or heavy. I, you know, it feels good to me and I have enough energy and I, I can sustain um, my whole day off that. Mm, that's awesome. Um, well, I want to talk about poop for just a second. Um, I know when we were at the Mindshare, we talked about that. And I talked to you about the fact that I am one of those people that is almost always constipated, right? So um, if you had somebody that just had, you know, IBS or just constipation or just alternating constipation with diarrhea, what is your suggestion for them? Like what's going to be like their next step for that? And I want you to talk about parasites for just a little bit. Yeah, so I I love poop and parasites. That's my thing. I love, I love it because it shows you so much about people's health. And so when someone has, 
irritable bowel syndrome or chronic constipation or chronic diarrhea, I always want to look at their gut. You want to see what's going on. Do they have infections? Do they have gut dysbiosis, which is an imbalance of good and bad bacteria? I want to know what's going on. And so a lot of people have this misconception that we don't have parasites in America and that nobody gets these gut infections. And so that's very um, uh, not true. It's inaccurate. Uh, we do have lots of parasites and it's actually estimated that about 50% of Americans have parasites. I think it's a little bit higher, but that's what the studies say. So parasites are fairly common. You're getting it from having your dog lick your face. They, the dogs pick up stuff at, you know, dog parks or even having your dog sleep with you. Dirty vegetables, you know, lettuces and celery are really dirty, really parasite heavy vegetables. Um, so always wash your fruits and veggies. That's where people are getting parasites. We're seeing it a lot from contaminated soil. You can even get it from, you know, having a kid play in the dirt and they get dirty soil under their nails and they bite their nails or even adults we see bite their nails, they pick up parasites. So it's really not that hard to get. Um, you can drink water that has it. It's You can go in a lake that has parasites. Very, very common. And some of the symptoms that are that stand out that are interesting are um, the nocturnal symptoms. Parasites are nocturnal. They're, they're metabolically active at night. So with parasites, we see a lot of people wake up in the middle of the night they say, I wake up at 3 a.m. every day. I don't know why. Or I wake up and I am super hungry at 3 a.m. and I crave sugar. Or I have restless leg syndrome. Or I, um, you know, have a hard time falling asleep. That's generally, you know, a good sign that there's some action going on in the gut. So explain the restless leg syndrome. How come, how come parasites are connected to restless leg syndrome? They're connected uh, kind of in a few ways. They take some of your minerals that kind of will agitate, you know, we know magnesium is a big player for restless leg syndrome. And so parasites will take all your minerals. They take your vitamins. And so they will definitely um, absorb what you need. And um, a lot of it too is just your body. The parasites are metabolically active at night. And so there's a sense of unease in your body. And so that kind of comes into your body's trying to move there's, you know, you have literal creatures inside of you. And so your body's trying to move and get comfortable. And it's just, it's rough with these, with these parasites, especially when someone has a big infection. Mm, awesome. Okay. Well, let's jump right into, oh, okay. I know one more question. Cause I would love to do some of these tests. So I will tell you one time I had gone to an internist doctor here and I said, I'd like you to check my gut. I'd like to check for parasites. And so she had me, you know, take a stool sample. And when I tell you the stool sample was maybe not even, you know, a quarter of a tenth of an inch. I mean, the smallest amount. And then I got tested and she said, you, you know, you don't have anything. So, and I was thinking to myself, this amount of stool that you're asking for, there's no way that you could actually see if I have parasites or anything with this smallest amount of stool samples. So talk about your favorite test and what you do for patients. And can you see them all over the country? Talk about that for a second. Yeah, we, so we see clients all over the country because we're fully virtual. So everything's done over Zoom and we'll send kits to your house and then we'll send you for blood 
work in your local area. So parasites are notoriously hard to catch. Um, what we'll do is we'll look for a pattern in blood and we'll see that certain immune markers in your blood will be off. And so that's our first indication that we have infections in the gut. So we're going to be looking at eosinophils, monocytes, lymphocytes, neutrophils, and basophils. Really good indicator of gut infection. That's like your 30,000 view, foot view of the gut. From there, what we'll do is organic acids testing, which is a urine test, and that will look for candida, fungus, and as well as clostridia, which is a bacteria. And then we'll do a stool test. Stool testing is with for parasites is not that accurate because um, it's they're they're tricky little creatures, and so they hide themselves in what's called biofilm. And biofilm is a slime that basically protects them from your immune system, and it kind of glues them to your intestines. So these parasites are covered by this biofilm and they don't really release into the stool unless they're kind of dead or dying. And so most of the time parasites, if you're not actively killing them, aren't going to be dead or dying. So they're not going to release. And you also have the fact that when parasites die, they kind of shrivel up and they're really good at basically dissolving themselves. So a stool test is not the most accurate way to get a parasite re but it will show you a lot of bacteria. It's going to show you if you have gut inflammation. It's going to show you your good flora versus your bad flora. So it's really good to see. And when we do a stool test, we like to do a stool test for you. We'll basically get stool from multiple different areas in, this, in the actual stool. You'll get samples from all these different areas. And it's, it is about, you'll fill up probably about three or four inches of stool into a vial. So it's a good amount of stool. You're pulling from different areas and that's our best shot at getting, you know, different things in the stool. So that's what we'll do. But it's the combination of the test that really gives us the full picture of what's going on in the gut. Okay. Awesome. Now, what is your opinion on actually like, and this will sound gross, but like literally taking like a napkin and putting it under your butt when you poop and literally looking at your stool to see, are you going to, you know, is there anything by looking at your stool, can you kind of say, hey, here are some things, this is a good idea, and what should someone be looking for? You know, I, I wish I couldn't say this, but I have done that many, many times. <laughs> I have, I am a big fan of looking through stool, but you're not probably going to see stuff unless you start actively going after infections. So a normal person, you're not going to see things. Yeah, you can look for undigested food and you look, can look for color and you can look for consistency just as an overall gut health, you know, test. But to see when you start digging through, if you've started taking some herbs to kind of go after infections, that's when you're going to start to see biofilm. You're going to start to see maybe parasites. Candida kind of looks like string cheese when you start killing it. So that's when you'll start to see these. And sometimes you don't even have to dig. When it hits the toilet water, it'll kind of break up and you'll see it. So it's definitely something you can do. I'm a big fan of going through your own stool and finding what's in there. Mm. So let's talk about undigested food for just a second. So, um, you know, if you do see undigested food, you know, I would say a lot of people would see things like corn or, you know, they say like, like peas or stuff like that. Um, so talk about what your poop should look like and what you should be looking for. How would you be able to tell that you've got undigested food and what does that mean for someone? 
a lot of undigested food isn't an issue if it's things that have that hard exterior. So that's going to be corn, it's going to be peas, it's mushrooms, some of the leafy greens, the really, you know, fibrous things are really hard to break through. So that's okay. Don't want to see is basically what you just ate go through you. We meat, we don't want to see, you know, carbs or whatever whatever it is, you don't want to see that. You don't want to see your, your meal in the toilet. And so that's when it can be an issue. It can just be that you didn't have enough stomach acid. Sometimes not enough stomach acid won't break down the food properly. Um, and then other times it can be more, um, more serious things like gallbladder, some gallbladder issues. But for the most part, most people's undigested food is going to be not an issue. If you're seeing, I know kale for me is a big one. I always see kale in the toilet. Um, corn, mushrooms, those are going to be okay. And you want your stool to be a brown color. You don't want it to be green. You don't want it to be white. You don't want it to be yellow. You want it to be some form of brown and you want it to be formed like a banana. You don't want it to be hard and pebbly. That's going to be definitely some constipation. That's dehydration. And you don't want it to be runny and loose. So you want it to be that formed banana-like, um, pretty much one formed and that's a great stool. And you should go to the bathroom every day. I can't stress that enough. You have to go to the bathroom every day. It is it is not normal to not go to the bathroom. And if you aren't going to the bathroom every day, I highly recommend finding what the cause is. Is it just you're not drinking enough water or you're not eating enough fiber? Is it that you have some infections going on? We need to figure that out. But if you don't go to the bathroom every day, you're holding toxins in. Your bowel movements in your stool are basically a way for your body to rid you of toxins. So if you're not passing it, those toxins are sitting inside you. So I can't stress enough, go to the bathroom every single day. Yeah. So talk about if your poop is like a light colored brown or like a light colored gray, what kind of signs of, you know, is that a sign of inflection, inflammation, blockage in your bile duct? Talk about the, the light the lighter brown and the the gray colors of what um, what those could represent. Yeah, the, the the any form of brown is okay. If it's super light, more like a cream color, that means that you're not really getting bilirubin, which is the color, which is what actually turns it brown. And so, if it's that grayish or it's that um, you know creamy color, that means that you probably have something going on with your bile ducts, something in your gallbladder that definitely needs to go be checked out. That's something that is more serious. Um, and so that's, you're, you definitely don't want that. If it's gray, you have to think of, well, with any color stool, you have to think of what you ate. If it's red and you just had beets, it's okay. It's not blood. If it's, you know, if it's gray and you just had activated charcoal as a supplement, that's okay. So you have to think back and make sure that you didn't just eat something that that was that color. And so if it's a gray color, that can be, um, you know, definitely, it depends on the color gray. If it's a darker gray, you know, more towards the black side, that could be a lower GI bleed. Um, so that stuff, something is definitely more serious. So we want to make sure that if your stools are not brown or close to it, that you go get it checked out because it definitely can be a more serious issue. Hmm. All right. And one more question I'm going to talk to you about saltwater flush. So we had a guest on the show that really said that she loves doing saltwater flushes um, if she's 
chronically constipated or experiencing irregular bowel movements, where basically you take four cups of water with two teaspoons of um, non-iodized salt. Um, And we've had different guests have different opinions on them. Talk to us about a saltwater flush. Have you ever done them? What's your thoughts on them? And do you like them or recommend them? I have never done a saltwater flush. I'm more of a coffee enema person. That's my jam is I'll do a coffee enema if, if I know I need to detox or I'm, you know, having issues going to the bathroom, but I, I don't generally recommend them. I haven't done enough research on them myself to really say anything good or bad about them. I'm just more of find the root cause of why you're constipated and figure it kind of go from there. Um, cause usually there's something underlying your body doesn't want to hold on to toxins. So there's something underlying, but as far as the saltwater flush, I haven't done enough research or really played around with them. I always will experiment on myself before I recommend it to any client. So I haven't done it on myself enough to, uh, maybe you should do one, maybe you should do it. And then we can talk about it on our part too. I'll, yeah, I'll do it. I'll try it and we can talk about it next time. Yeah. Hey guys, we absolutely love getting your questions into the podcast, but we're also interested in your journey. So if you've started intermittent fasting and have some success or even struggling a little bit, we want to hear about it. Email me your intermittent fasting stories to Chantel at ChantelRayWay.com. Now back to the show. Um, so talk real quick about the coffee enema more in detail. How often do you do them? And try to, in, as much in detail, describe to the listeners what you personally do for that coffee enema. Yeah, I, I think coffee enemas were probably the biggest turnaround in my healing journey. They're the, a wonderful detox agent. It basically will get your liver to dump the toxins. And then it gets your intestines to go into hyperperistalsis, which means it moves faster. So that biofilm I was talking about earlier, that will release. Some of the parasites are going to release. So it's great for that. And it's great for just kind of cleaning you out. So I do coffee enemas now as maintenance. I do them about once a month. When I was really, really sick, I did them sometimes every day, two or three times a week. I was doing a lot of them because I was so toxic and needed to get stuff out of me. But for a normal person, once a month, once every other month is plenty. And I recommend that you get um, a coffee enema kit. You can buy them on Amazon and you just want to make sure that it's organic and therapeutic coffee. Not, it's not your regular coffee. It's a different, it's a medium roast coffee and they pull a lot of the chemicals out. So it's, it's a very different coffee. You can't drink it. And so you'll brew it. And I do about five cups of water to three tablespoons of this coffee and you basically boil it uncovered for three minutes and then simmer it for 15 and then let it cool. And you'll then put it into the enema bucket and then um, you'll take it into the bathroom and then you'll um, put the enema, you know, insert the enema and then let it drain into you. And then as soon as you get, then you'll go to the bathroom and then it will kind of all come out of you. You'll see this toxin flush. I've seen everything from parasites to black tar looking stuff come out. And so kind of everything in between. So you can kind of get a really good idea of what's going on in your body based off this coffee enema, but there's some amazing resources out there um, to find information on coffee enemas um, that you can look up the Gerson Institute. They have great information on coffee enemas and pretty much you can Google, you know, coffee enema and um, the Gerson Institute is going to come up. Dr. J. Davidson is going to come up. 
those are some of the people that have really great information on coffee enemas, the background of them, how they started and what they're used for. Awesome. Well, let's jump right into the listener questions. This is from Bailey in Wyoming. I'm a very firm believer in holistic healing. I don't think you should take any painkillers or medicine for every little ache or pain you have. When I was younger, I used to always get the worst cramps when I was ever on my period, but I've overcome that and now they don't bother me. My question is, should I stick to this mentality when I start having kids? Is there any natural remedies I could use? Bailey in Wyoming. Hi, yeah, Bailey, there are tons of natural remedies It's a little bit harder with kids because as you probably know, some of the natural remedies don't taste as good as, you know, taking uh, children's Advil, but I'm a huge fan of holistic everything. I don't really take medication unless I absolutely have to. And so there are definitely things you can do holistically for a kid. You just have to know, you know, sometimes you have to make the call. Do I need to go to a doctor and have it checked out? If your kid has a toothache, you probably should take them to a dentist to have it checked out. But in the meantime, what you can do is, you know, put on some garlic, you know, smash up some garlic and put it on their tooth and then have them rinse out after a few minutes or use, you can use peppermint and um, uh, you can use peppermint and clove oil on a cotton ball, essential oils, and put it on, rub it right on the tooth. That will help. It has antimicrobial properties. It also has a slight pain killing effect. You can also, if you're, if the kid will do tea, you can put thyme leaves in water and then you can basically heat up the water and let the leaves kind of put them in for a few minutes, let them seep and then pull the leaves out, let the water cool and then give the child some of the, the water that has the thyme in it. It has a pain killing effect. So those are amazing things you can do. There's amazing blogs out there that you can find for people that have kids that have you know, found what works and what doesn't. I don't have any kids. So whenever I give suggestions for people, I don't have the firsthand knowledge of doing it on my own child, but I've seen it done on a lot of clients and family members, children, and you just have to find what works for your child that what they can tolerate. And then if it's more something more serious, definitely go have a doctor look at it. But holistic care is definitely an option for children and adults. So if you had somebody who was an adult, we get questions about neck pain, back pain, and menstrual cramps, natural remedies. Those are the three biggest questions we get on would be as far as neck, back, and menstrual cramps. What would you suggest for someone if they if they have chronic areas of pain in those areas instead of taking Advil every single day? I mean, I, I, have, I, I just played tennis with this guy, and he said to me, he, he literally had a, this huge bottle of Advil. And I said something like, oh, my knee was bothering me. He's like, oh, you want some Advil? And I was like, no, thank you, because I don't take Advil or, or anything unless I'm like dying, you know, maybe a couple times a year. I mean, I have to be like dying, dying. And he's like, oh, he's like, I take five or six every single day. And I was like, oh my goodness. So what would you suggest for someone? He's like, yeah, I've got chronic, you know, pain every day. What would you say to them? I would say for chronic neck and back pain, my first thing I always recommend is go to a chiropractor, go get your spine checked. It's, it's the easiest thing you can do. It's safe. And basically they can align your spine and see if there's any interference going on there and see if 
Then there's supplements like magnesium. Magnesium is probably my favorite painkiller. Um, there is, it's a natural muscle relaxer. So anytime I have menstrual cramps, a headache, anything like that, my go-to is magnesium glycinate. I take that and it will kind of calm the muscles down. It works very, very well. And so for menstrual cramps, I would say that. Another thing that I've noticed works fairly well for menstrual cramps is cutting back on your meat intake right before your period. That helps a lot. I've seen that work time and time again. So if you cut back on your meat intake before your um, before your period comes, that should help. And then if you do get any cramps, you can do some magnesium and then a little bit stronger would be some CBD oil. Awesome. I'm glad you talked about magne the different, you know, there's magnesium glycinate, um, magnesium citrate. I want you to talk about the different magnesiums and what they're for and what you should use them for. Yeah, the different magnesiums is basically just looking at how it's absorbed by the body. So mag my two favorite magnesiums are magnesium citrate and magnesium glycinate. Magnesium, both of them are going to have the same muscle relaxing effects, but magnesium citrate I'm going to use for somebody. That's my go-to if someone's constipated and it's kind of a fluke constipation thing. I say, go take some magnesium citrate. That will help get you to go to the bathroom. Citrate you can take basically and it will give you in your bowels. Magnesium glycinate is the most absorbable by the body. And so that's what we're going to use. You can use it in higher doses. It's not going to give you constant or not going to give you diarrhea. It's not going to loosen your bowels at all. It really doesn't affect that. But what it's going to do is have those muscle relaxing effects that we're looking for that the citrate does, but you can't take as much of it because it's going to cause the bowels to loosen. Good. And then there's two other kinds of magnesium, magnesium oxide and magnesium malate. Um, those two have been known for people suffering from like fatigue and fibromyalgia. Do you recommend those two at all or played around with those two? Not really. Every once in a while, I'll put someone on a supplement, like we'll do a calcium magnesium supplement for someone that has high oxalates. And that's going to be multiple forms of magnesium. And that's because you're using it essentially to break down oxalate crystals. But um, we generally will use magnesium glycinate and citrate. Um, but we don't use magnesium really as a any sort of long-term protocol. I use it, you know, a lot of people do really well with magnesium with Lyme because, you know, you become magnesium deficient due to the infection. So they'll be on magnesium. But really what we do is figure out what their root causes are. If they have fibromyalgia, I'm more concerned with why they have it than putting them on a magnesium supplement. So I'll figure out what's going on and why they need, you know, what what supplements they need to kind of get to the root cause. And then sometimes that includes magnesium. Other times it doesn't. It looks at more getting rid of toxins and stuff. Okay, this is from Kelly in Montana. I was diagnosed with Lyme disease about six years ago after I got back from a camping trip with some girlfriends. I've heard that you can still have traces of it even if you're treated for it. Is that true? I just got married and I'm worried that when I get pregnant, I might pass this on to my children. Should I even be worried about this? Kelly in Montana. Hi, Kelly. You know, I'm sorry to hear that you have a Lyme diagnosis. You know, it's not the greatest one, and I can, I can definitely feel for you on this one. And so what, with Lyme, it's a little bit tricky. You can 
get rid of it to an extent, but you're always, that is correct. You are always going to be carrying it. So basically what it means is your immune system has it under control and it's okay. This is kind of similar to people that carry other viruses around. You don't ever get rid of them, but you, you know, you, you have them, but they don't cause symptoms. So it sounds like that's what you have going on. And it's going to be really vital for you to keep your immune system really healthy because stressors like, you know, a stressful situation at work or a family thing, those can cause the, the Lyme to kind of weak or kind of come back because your immune system is weakened. So you're going to always want to make sure that you're staying on top of your eating, being really clean, using clean products and not letting your toxin load build up to keep the Lyme at bay. So that's kind of part one to your question. The second part about it being transferred over to a, a fetus is a little bit tricky there isn't really scientific proof on that, um, especially more so we see this with people with chronic Lyme. People like me that didn't catch it for a really long time, that's going to be more the case for them. And so we always, you know, say be careful, but it, there isn't really proof either way. It's kind of a controversial topic. It depends on who you talk to. I honestly don't really have a solid scientifically proved, proven answer to that, unfortunately. Hmm. All right, this is from Francis in Virginia. I take 125 milligrams of levothyroxine for my thyroid. I'm actually interested in getting off that medicine. I've been on it for so long. I don't want to just stop cold turkey, though I'm afraid that that might make my symptoms worse. I know I don't need to be dependent on this medicine. How can I wean myself off this? Do I need to cut back slowly on my dose and then eventually stop taking it? Any help would be great. Yeah, that's something we hear all the time. I want to get off my thyroid medication. And it's something that we've seen done time and time again, but it has to be done very, very carefully. Definitely do not do this on your own. Don't try to cut back your dosages because you have to, you know, I, I feel like I say this all the time, but we have to find the root cause of your thyroid issue. Is there a gut issue? We know the huge correlation between the gut and the thyroid. A lot of your thyroid conversion happens in your gut. So is there an issue there? Are we looking at just you don't have what you need to make it? Do you not have selenium, iodine, zinc, all of the different things you need for thyroid conversion? Are you methylating? The methylation genes, you need to be methylating for your thyroid to convert. So there's a lot of things that need to be looked at. And then once you figure that out, then you can work with someone to help get your, you know, get your thyroid working again, and then also work with the prescribing doctor to cut back. But we don't ever cut back on someone's medication. We have them work with their prescribing doctor, and then we will work on, you know, supporting the thyroid and we kind of will um, support it. And then they'll show their blood work to their doctor and their doctor will say, okay, we're going to cut back. We're going to cut back. And then it kind of Sometimes they can come off of it. Sometimes they can cut way back. It just depends on what the thyroid issue is, um, how long it's been going on, is there autoimmunity. There's a lot of factors that go in, but definitely if you work with a holistic health coach or holistic practitioner, they can definitely guide you through you know, supporting the thyroid, and then you can work with your prescribing doctor to get off or cut back on the thyroid medications. So talk a little bit deeper about thyroid and constipation, how those two tie together hand in hand. The thyroid and constipation, that is probably one of the biggest things we see is um, sometimes people don't even know they have thyroid issues, but they come to us with constipation. And so with thyroid, usually with constipation, we're seeing hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's. And so 
that tends to slow your metabolism down. It also, you usually have your missing some minerals. And so as your metabolism slows down and you don't have the minerals needed, it will, it can cause some constipation. And then if we look at the gut and the thyroid, a lot of it comes back to there's some infection in the gut. There's some dysbiosis and the thyroid isn't converting. T4, thyroid hormone T4 converts to T3 in your gut. So if there is gut dysbiosis, which the good bacteria and the bad bacteria are out of balance, or there's parasites, bacterial infections, candida, anything like that, we can basically have where the thyroid hormone won't convert properly. And when you have gut dysbiosis or infections, constipation is a huge symptom. So it's kind of they, it's kind of a cycle of which one causes which, but we didn't know that the gut imbalance can cause thyroid issues. And so that having a gut imbalance causes constipation. Well, and like the other thing that she said is that she is on levothyroxine or Synthroid, but which is a which is just T4. And so if your whole issue with your thyroid is you can't convert T4 to T3, and then you need to be taking something like a desiccated thyroid that has T3 in it. Because if you're having trouble converting T4 to T3 and all you're taking is T4, you're not ever fixing your thyroid issue. No, so. you're not fixing it. And you're, all you're doing is basically bringing one of the many. Because when you look at a thyroid, we're looking at TSH, T3, T4, reverse T3, T3 uptake. There's a ton of things to look at. And so you want the whole picture to look good. You don't want just T4 to look good. So, And they're all dependent on each other. So if one is suffering the others will suffer as well. So you want to figure out what the root cause is. And then if you figure it out, then yeah, maybe a glandular supplement's better for you. Or, you know, maybe you just need something with iodine, selenium, and those, you know, a thyroid support supplement. It's just kind of what's going on and what we can do to get your thyroid thyroid working as best it can. So the topic of methylation is a common to the functional medicine community, but it's not common to the average person. Um, so for someone who's never heard of that, talk about that in detail. Yeah, it's something that's kind of the new buzzword in, in functional medicine. Everybody loves to talk about methylation, and more commonly we hear people say, I have MTHFR. That's probably the most common gene that everybody knows of. And so they'll come to us and they, it's like they have a, like, that's their disease. I have MTHFR. But what it actually is, is a series of genes that basically will um, convert your B vitamins into the usable form. This You need methylation for about 250 of your body's processes. So you need it for thyroid conversion, detox. You need it for um, your hormones. You need it for all different things. And so we'll commonly see People will come to us with blood work and they have no idea. They've never had a genetic test, but you can see patterns of methylation issues in blood work. You can see high homocysteine. You can see pernicious anemia, which is your B12 anemia. And they all say, I've been taking a B supplement, but what it actually means is they're not able to use that B supplement. It's not a methylated B vitamin. And that's what they're, if you have a methylation mutation, you need a methylated form of a B. So about 80% of people have some sort of methylation issue. So what we do is genetic test and we'll see which of the genes there's methylation issues in and then get them on some sort of methyl supplement, methylfolate supplement to help support and kind of, it's kind of the workaround. We just give them their body what it needs rather than giving a vitamin that they can't use. 
Mm. And so that's just, they'll just get on the phone with you and then you will send them that MTHFR test to see, are you having an issue with that? Is that correct? Yeah. So we'll do, it's a, it's a cheek swab. So they'll, they'll swab their cheek and they'll send it in. And we look at all of your methylation genes. And then we'll also look at detox genes because some people can't detox. We have the ability to look at um, gluten genes to see if some people have a predisposition to having gluten-based issues or dairy-based issues. We can look at people, we can see, do you need to be on a probiotic? We see how your gut genes are. We can look at your neurotransmitter genes. We can see all sorts of really, really cool genes. Plus drive what supplements we put you on because everybody's genetics are different. And so now that we've been able to go one step further and see what genetically you need is just taking, you know, functional medicine and holistic medicine, one step further to being, you know, so personalized and so amazing for each person. Awesome. And last question, can you describe to people what is the difference between someone having low iron versus low ferritin, like the difference between those? And what would be some of the some of the reasons why someone would have low iron getting down to that root cause? Yeah, low, this is something we see all the time. And this is actually something I've struggled with myself. Lyme disease people, it's a very good sign that or it's a very easy symptom to pick up on and sign to pick up on when you have low iron, that there's some sort of infection. And so we know that if you have low iron and you're eating iron, you're eating red meat, you're getting you know enough iron that your iron should be normal or close to normal, and it's low, we're looking at infection. We're looking at Babesia, which is an infection that goes along with Lyme. We're looking at parasites. These guys love to eat your iron. So if we see iron and we can't get it up, or they're like, I eat red meat all the time, I take an iron supplement and it's not getting any better, then we go, okay, definitely an infection issue. So iron is then is stored as ferritin. It's what your body can hold on to. And so sometimes we'll see someone that has really high iron or normal iron and very, very low ferritin. And so what we know is then we'll look at the liver. That conversion happens in the liver. So do they need to detox? Do they have, you know, really high liver enzymes? Is their liver kind of boggy? Some people, if they have, especially if they have methylation issues, they're not detoxing well, or if they have genetic variations to their detox genes, their livers are kind of toxic. So they're not going to be able to convert iron to ferritin well. So if we see that pattern, then we know, okay, we need to look at the liver. We need to detox them and make sure that we're kind of focusing on cleaning out the liver. If we see both of them are low, iron and ferritin, it's usually an iron problem. And so then we'll say, usually we'll start with, we always run tests and so we're always going to be looking at, is there an infection going on? And then if the iron, if it doesn't get better, it doesn't get better, then we're gonna go a little bit deeper. If there wasn't reason to believe that there was Lyme before, but it doesn't get better, then we'll go down the Babesia route and say, okay, maybe we have some Lyme going on that they just aren't showing symptoms of. So it's usually infections, parasites love red blood cells and they love your iron. And so that's generally the biggest thing we see. Or sometimes it's just gut issues. If you have gut malabsorption from leaky gut, you're not going to absorb iron as efficiently as you should. So that's usually kind of your moderate iron, you know, not super low, but bottomed out is usually um, either they don't eat iron or they have an infection. Awesome. Well, Dr. Tori, tell everyone if they want to find more out about you and find out about your work, where do they go? 
Yeah, we have, you can find us in a lot of ways. We actually are hosting a um, webinar on brain chemistry and balance. And so if someone wants to learn about brain chemistry and balance, depression, anxiety, they can sign up for our webinar um, on our website. They can visit modernholistichealth.com, sign up for our website. You'll get an ebook on gut health and brain chemistry and balance, and you'll get an email about our webinar series. So I highly recommend doing that. And then you can follow us on Facebook. We have a, a Facebook group called Crusaders for Health, where we post food that we're eating or articles that we found. Every week we post Facebook lives. I talked about parasites this week, and then we talked about mold. We always are talking about cool topics. So join or follow us on Crusaders for Health. And then you can follow me on Instagram. My Instagram is Dr. Tori Thompson, and I always have what I'm eating on there, interesting things I find, and you can all find a ton of information. So there's plenty of ways to find us, um, but we hope to hear from you, reach out to us, say hi. Well, awesome. Well, I fell in love with Dr. Tori the second I met her. After a few minutes, I'm like, oh my gosh, here's my new BFF right here. Um, and I know that you'll fall in love with her too. And she takes clients all over the country. So she can send you all the packets. You can do it all via Skype and talk about easy. Um, so check out, if they want to go to your website, what is your website? It's www.modernholistichealth.com. All right. Well, if you have a question that you want answered, go to questions at chantelrayway.com. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.